Turn again in your Bible to Judges. Again, this book, Record of the Judges. Chapter 10, and reading verses 1 through 5 only for the message this morning. Judges chapter 10 and verse 1. And after Abimelech there arose to defend Israel. You'll note the marginal reading there if you have an old King James Bible. To deliver Israel. And after Abimelech there arose to deliver Israel Tola. The son of Puah the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shemir in Mount Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty and three years and died and was buried in Shemar. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years. And he had 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts. And they had 30 cities, which are called Havoth-Jair unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cana. Turn with me again. Your hymn book, please. Turn to number 607. Standing, please, with me. Will you stand? 607. such blessings find 
their hope shall flee like empty chaff before the driving wind. Thank you. Be seated. Forty-five years of cooling breezes. The full title, which I did not have her print in your bulletin. God be praised. Forty-five years of cooling breezes. God be praised. We return now this morning. Finally, to our series of study in the Judges of Israel. And now to this 10th chapter. Over the course of several messages, we have struggled through chapter 9. I did not go back to count the exact number, but I know there were several messages. Struggling, I said, through chapter 9. We almost grew weary of those horrible scenes acted out during the life and career of that vile and bloody usurper Abimelech. In trying to preach my way through those scenes, I was forced to use almost ad nauseum terms like treachery and treacherous, villainy and villainous, bloodletting and fratricide. Terms like vile, evil, pagan, ungodly, and godless. These and many more in describing Abimelech's wretched, murderous career. All of which served only to set an accurate picture before our minds of the horror that's wrought out when God's people forsake the kindness of their covenant God and turn to idols. Glad we were. Whatever good our souls may have received, glad we were to see the end of it all at last. In verse 56 and 57. When the scripture said to us. Thus God rendered the wickedness of Abimelech. Which he did unto his father in slaying his 70 brethren. And all the evil of the men of Shechem. Did God render upon their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham the son of Jerubbabel. Glad we were to hear it. Glad we were to hear it. These, we are told by one scholar, it is said 
of him. It is these cruelties and abominations of heathenism which required and explained the destruction of these Canaanites. For God punishes sin. There is no truth more undeniable and none the knowledge of which is more widely spread. We suffer for every fault we commit. As root and fruit, so wrong and wretchedness go together. However subtle the fault, God's providence operates in penalties still more subtle. The eating of any forbidden fruit always has its two penalties. The loss of power and the loss of some sort of Eden. Sins of sinners have their penalties. And God's people receive double for all their sins. A heavier stroke for the less excusable trans- transgression. It is not because God is wrathful that he punishes sin, but because he is God. <laughs> Did you get that? It is not because God is wrathful that he punishes sin, but because he is God. And so those scenes in chapter 9 were filled, filled with tragedy. And glad we were to see the end of it. But now this morning, This morning we've arrived at that blessed record in chapter 10 at verse 1 through 5 which I read in your hearing earlier. Here, in the shadow of that declaration which I just read to you in verse 56 and 59, 56 and 57 of chapter 9, here in the shadow of that declaration the declaration of God's perfect justice and perfect judgment, we come this morning to scenes whose character could not be more different, could not be more opposite. One almost feels in reading this text that we have lighted on a well-watered oasis of heaven's cool breezes blowing just in the middle of this desert of hellish destruction. An oasis of God's cool breezes blowing. What a joy, what a delight are these blessed mercies. Forty-five years of cooling breezes. From heaven's paradise. Forty-five years of refreshing waters from heaven's fountains. Hallelujah. All recorded in only five verses. Oh, how quickly. How quickly. How quickly is our God able 
to revitalize his people when sin is purged away. How quickly we marvel at it. Moving from the 57th verse of chapter 9 to the first verse of chapter 10, we marvel at how quickly God is able to revitalize his people when sin is purged away. Many are the places I could go this morning in Scripture and show you this, this truth over and over and over again. Many are the Psalms in which David sings out the joy of this truth. Many are the examples, but I must not digress today from our text. I will only repeat the principle again to our wise and needful admonition. Oh, how quickly is our God able to revive and refresh His people when once their sin is purged away. Oh, indeed. I considered if I were willing to preach topically, and I am made aware regularly that some among you do not care for it. But if I were willing to preach topically, I considered taking this phrase and demonstrating it numerous places in the scripture, that singular phrase, and after Abimelech. And after Abimelech. Hallelujah. Oh, one could trace that precious theme all the way to Calvary in the scriptures. And after Abimelech. Hey, hey, the usurper is is done away. The usurper is put down. And the glory of God returns. What a theme that is. What a message that would make to go through the scriptures and go all the way to Calvary with it. And after Abimelech. Hallelujah. Oh, after Abimelech. After Abimelech. Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Verse 15 through 19. I'll tell you after Abimelech what it's like. Oh, after Abimelech, the hill of God is as the hill of Bashan and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye ye hills, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desired to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai. 
in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also. That the Lord God might dwell among them. Hallelujah. After Abimelech. After Abimelech. It's always after Abimelech. Blessed be the Lord, said the psalmist, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Blessed be the Lord after Abimelech. <laughs> but again, I must not digress. So then, in attempting something of an exposition of these verses. I begin with a concise and yet faithful summary of these opening scenes given to us by Matthew Henry. He said, After Abimelech had debauched Israel by his wickedness, disquieted and disturbed them by his restless ambition and by the mischiefs he brought on them, exposed them to enemies from abroad, after all of that, God animated this good man to appear for the reforming of abuses, the putting down of idolatry, the appeasing of tumults, and the healing of the wounds given to the state by Abimelech's usurpation. And thus he saved them from themselves and guarded them against their enemies. Concise, accurate summary. Could I just pause here, though? I'd allow us to take in this blessed truth. Such is the inexplicable mercy of our God that in the words of Psalm 125 and verse 3, the rod of the wicked will not always rest on the righteous. Could I just say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Such is the inexplicable mercy of our God that the rod of the wicked will not always rest on the righteous. Bless his holy name. The rod of the wicked will not always rest on a nation if repentance is sought out. The rod of the wicked will not always rest on a church if repentance does its precious work. The rod of the wicked, can I testify, will not always rest on the individual saint if repentance works its sweet work. Oh, bless the Lord for that truth in Psalm 125 and verse 3. The rod of the wicked will not 
always rest on the righteous. Surely these five verses bear out that record. Oh, said the dear Pastor Rogers in 1615, when Achan, Sheba, Absalom were taken away, behold, there was calm again. And great calm there was after so horrible tempest. The whole church is like a ship in which if there be one Jonah, what tumult does he make? But cast him out and the danger is over. And as this is true of great sinners and public offenders, so it is true of more inferior and private persons. And further, by the rooting out of Abimelech, let us confess it to be a great benefit when such authors of mischief and workers of iniquity be taken away. And therefore give all our endeavor for the maintenance of peace and to make holy and right use of it. That is why we enjoy it. For as we may see by these that sought peace after the death of Abimelech, even so the most that are used to trouble others in time waxed weary of it, and God gives his people rest. Amen. The sudden and tragic death of Abimelech, which was so clearly the judgment of God, seems to have awakened a general repentance in Israel. And then what do we find is the description of such a period of rest. Well. It is just this. In verse 1. After Abimelech there arose. To defend. To deliver Israel. This is the description given. It's a defense. It's a deliverance. The Hebrew word translated defend. Here is described as meaning to make safe or to open wide. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a beautiful Hebrew picture? To open wide. When do you open wide your doors in your house? When you feel safe. When do you open wide your heart to others? When you feel safe. When you feel defended. What a beautiful word. This is the description of this period. This 45 years. Of cool breezes blowing over Israel. Open wide. These men, Tola and Jair, were raised up. In the words of one scholar. To protect them from their external enemies. 
administer justice among themselves and preserve them in their true religion. When I read that over and over again, I thought, my goodness, isn't that a, if you were teaching a systematic theology class in ecclesiology, wouldn't that be a wonderful definition for a New Testament pastor? He's given to protect them from external enemies, to administer justice among them, and to keep them in true religion. <laughs> what a wonderful definition for a New Testament minister. His job is building and battling in the words of Nehemiah. Fawcett wisely said, these men were raised up to save them from internal conspirators like Abimelech and external foes like Midian, but mostly from apostasy and idolatry from within themselves, which so often plagued them. Notice with me in verse 3 that he is said to have judged. And he judged Israel. Twenty and three years. Notice he judged Israel. Not he reigned in Israel. <laughs> no, no, he's not a king, but a judge. This Hebrew word literally means to litigate or to pronounce a sentence. His job is the work of litigation. His job is not to make law. He is not to be the law. He is simply to litigate the law of God. This is the work which Gideon's example had set for them. That's why Gideon said, I will not rule over you. This is the work of labor, not leisure. This is the work of pain and circumspection, not pomp and ceremony. This is the work of guidance and graces, not greed and gaudiness. This is the work of spiritual judgment, not carnal kingship. This is the work under which Israel thrived for 45 years. Hallelujah. He judged Israel. He judged Israel. And who were these judges? Well, first we read in verse 1 again, there was this man, Tola. Oh, here's a blessed lesson for us this morning. Here's a blessed lesson in the longevity of the fruit of a holy life. Listen to me now. 
Here in this mantle is the lesson in the longevity of the fruit of one holy life. This man had six sons. And we find in First Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 2 that a hundred and sixty years later their seed numbered twenty-two thousand six hundred fit fighting men in David's service. Hey, did you get it? Did you get it? A hundred and sixty years later, twenty-two thousand six hundred descendants of this man are fit and fighting on the Lord's side. Amen. Hey, here's a man that gives us a lesson in the longevity of the fruit of a single holy life. <laughs> oh, listen. When I first approached this text of study, I don't know when, sometime back. My first thought was, my goodness. How little do we know of this man, Toa? Oh, what little do we know? What little is said? Nothing of the details of his service in those long years. Only this, that it lasted 23 years. That's all we know until we turn over to Chronicles and we find out that 160 years later he's got a multiplied seed that are fit and fighting men on the Lord's side. Oh, the longevity. We get so short-sighted, do we not? Brother John, do we not? Aren't we so short-sighted? We just don't see Past the end of our nose, as the old saying. So little is said about him. So little, all we know is that he reigned and that Israel had peace for 23 years. But oh, 160 years later, he's long gone. He never saw it. Can I tell you that this seed fell into good ground and yielded Hundreds fold. Oh, saint of God, never tire. Never tire. Mother, never tire. Father, when the days are hard and long and the nights are weary, never tire. Oh, dear saint of God, never tire. Remember this song. Chapter 1, ye shall reap if you faint not. Oh, you may not see it. Listen to verse, listen to Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be. Like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf shall not, his weak leaf, his leaf 
also shall not wither, and whithersoever whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Listen, it may be a hundred and sixty years down the road. But God is faithful. And if you're faithful, that seed fell in good ground and bore fruit. Tolak gives us a lesson in the longevity of the fruit of God. Of one faithful man. But wait, there's another in our text. Verse 3 and 4. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel twenty and two years. And he had thirty sons that rode on thirty ass colts. And they had thirty cities. Which are called Havoth Jair unto this day, unto this day, which are in the land of Gideon. There's a second ruler here, and he is a Gileadite. Gil says this of him. He was of the half tribe of Manasseh. On the other side of Jordan. Which inhabited the land of Gilead. And who is the first of the judges that was on that side of Jordan. It pleased God, said Dr. Gill, before the government was settled in a particular tribe. To remove it from one to another and to honor them all. And to show that though the two tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh were separated from them by the river Jordan, they were not neglected by the Lord. And generally speaking, judges were raised up in all those parts which were most oppressed and liable to be oppressed by their enemies, as Gilead, by the Ammonites. Wherefore this and the next judge that followed him, Jephthah, were from Gilead. Here's a lesson to our hearts this morning. Our God will use men from all the ranks of his tribes. Amen. Our God will use men. go sometimes to camp meetings where I confess I find very little companionship in doctrine or practice. But it never fails that along the way in those meetings some little fellow as men count bigness He's called on to step up to the pulpit. He's been tucked away somewhere in the mountain, in a holler somewhere, walking with God. 
A little nobody from nowhere comes with a message from a great God. And God fills the cups of his people. Can I just tell you? Can I just tell you of Jair? God will go across Jordan. Pick one out. Unknown. Unambitious. Our God will use men from all ranks of his tribes. Hallelujah. Oh, his name, Jair's name means enlightener. <laughs> enlightener. His name is preserved in the New Testament in that Greek name, Jairus, in Mark 5 and verse 22. He was from the other side of Jordan, but God called him. And his faithful service lasted 22 years in calm prosperity. Oh, and look with me, look with me at the value of his godly influence. Look at verse 4 again. He had 30 sons that rode on 30 asses. <laughs> and they had 30 cities, which are called Havoth, Havoth, Jair. 30 sons. Riding on 30 asses, which by the way are a symbol of dignity and place. And 30 cities bearing his name. <laughs> oh, the lessons that are here for our hearts. The glory of a godly posterity. Fathers, Encourage your sons. Keep constantly encouraging your sons. Walk with the Lord. Sons, take the counsel of your fathers. Walk with the Lord. Symbols of dignity and place. Oh, if only... We were Hebrew scholars here this morning. We could recognize immediately in the Hebrew text of this verse that there's a play on words here. <laughs> the word ash colts is from the same Hebrew word as the words city. So what is my point? Could I just take a little side track and say to you that such is the glory and majesty and wisdom of our infinite God that there's even poetic beauty in the language of his histories. Hey, hey, hallelujah. I tell you, some of you are historians and well-versed and love history, but when I grew up, I had a hard time with it. 
I felt lost in the whole thing. And I try to read my history textbooks and they seem to me totally boring and dead. Well, can I just tell you this morning, when God writes a history book, there's poetic beauty in it. Even the language is beautiful. Shakespeare. (laughs) The modern critics of Shakespeare and Shakespearean language. They say, why did he have to go all the way around that way to say it? Why didn't he just say blah, blah, blah? (laughs) Oh, they just don't appreciate the beauty of the language. The beauty of linguistic poetics. Did you know in heaven, You've heard the question. People say, what, what language we're going to speak in heaven? Well, it's not an earthly one, I can tell you that. I don't know what it, it's not an earthly one, I can tell you that. My Bible said, I have not seen or ear heard, neither have it entered into the mind of man things God has prepared. And as much as that can be said of everything else you can imagine, it can also be said of language. There's no language that has ever captured the language of heaven. <laughs> Hey, hey, our God, our God even introduces poetic beauty in his records of history. <laughs> My wife made a statement on yesterday. We were having a discussion, not of this text, something entirely different. But my wife made a brilliant statement. She said, if there were no other excuse, No other reason or cause to retain the King James Version of the Bible in all of our doings. If there were no other reason to do it, this is reason enough to squash the triteness and vulgarity of modern language. Amen. If a woman did say it. Before we move on in our chapter, And are, as it were, dragged away from this text. Allow me just two other valued lessons from its general record. And I'll move quickly. Two other valued lessons from this general record. Number one, there's a lesson in the value of quiet times in our lives. There is a lesson in the value of quiet times in our lives. I couldn't say it better than another did, so I'll just use his words and not mine. He said, in the affairs of nations, as in the lives of men, there are occasional periods of uneventful Quietness. When the storms and winds of stirring interest and aggressive actions are lulled and a monotonous rest succeeds to exciting change. Israel was now experiencing the happiness of a people whose annals are dull. Hey, man, I like that. 
being an old man and getting older by the day. I like the sound of that. Israel is now experiencing the happiness of a people whose annals are dull. It is generally a miserable thing to be the subject of an interesting story. Did you get that? Yes. Yeah, Tinker, you can apply that in your literary pursuits. It's generally a miserable thing to be the subject of an interesting story. The more of incident the story is, the more full of distress will be the person to whom it relates. Happiness generally visits private lives in their obscurity and forsakes those that are protruded into the glare of vulgar curiosity. David's happiest days, listen, David's happiest days were spent with the sheep on the hills of Bethlehem. Christ found more happiness in Capernaum than in Jerusalem. In such times, at such times, no great characters stand out from the historic canvas. No activity of mind producing a clashing of opinions agitates the surface of society. So great measures are called for. No great measures are called for. No striking incidences of prosperous or of adverse persecution is still. It is so likewise with the church. At a quiet time, heresy is still. Aggressive movements of parties are still. Controversy is hushed. Christianity folds her wings and takes no flight. There are no reformers at work. Fanaticism is asleep. The uniformity of slumber supersedes the diversities of energetic life. Such periods of stillness may have their uses often only after the lull from the storm. But they have evils in them likewise. Such were the 45. They, they are, they are only temporary. Only temporary. Such were the 45 years of the judges of Tola and Jair. In their days we read of no invasions of their foes. No Gideon comes to the front with the strong life of unquenchable faith and indomitable courage. The only events chronicled are the peaceful writings of Jair's sons upon their asses amidst their ancestral homes. What a record. What a quiet, calming record. But troublous times were at hand. It was the lull before the storm. Would the storm find the people prepared? The sequel in this chapter will show us. Meanwhile, the reflection arises. Be it our aim in quiet times. Not to fall asleep. In times of excitement, not to lose the balance of a sober mind and a calmness and a deep-rooted faith.
Yet another very wisely tells us this. There is a quietness which betokens the stagnation of death. And there is a condition of ease which favors indolence, luxury, and vice. But there is also a quietness of holy life. The flowers grow not in the noisy storm, but in the soft showers and quiet sunshine. In times of quiet, a nation is able to effect legislative improvements, to open up its internal resources, to develop commerce, to cultivate science, art, literature, and to turn its attention to the promotion of the highest welfare of its citizens. In times of quiet, the church is able to study divine truth more deeply and to carry out missionary enterprises with more energy. In times of quiet, rightly used, the soul enjoys the contemplation of God and grows under the peaceful influences of His Spirit. Quiet times are more frequent. Don't miss this. Quiet times are more frequent than we commonly suppose. History directs inordinate attention to scenes of tumult. Hence, we are likely to magnify the range of these. In times of war, there are vast areas of peace. Terrible seasons which attract our attention are separated by long intervals of quiet which pass under us unnoticed. Thus it was in the history of Israel, which is really not so dark as it appears, because so many generations were spent in peaceful obscurity. In the history of our own country, of the church, and of the world, and in our own lives, since we commonly recollect the troublesome times, which are striking specifically because they are abnormal, and ungratefully ignore long, quiet seasons of unbroken blessing. But are we using them rightly? Oh, during those times in your life when there's relative calm, the ground under your feet is still and peaceful. What are you doing with that time? But now finally, especially in the context of that last thought, I point you to this final lesson. In the light of the context of that thought, time of peace will not last forever. I give you this lesson. Both of these godly men died. Verse 2, And he judged Israel twenty and three years and died and was buried in Shemir. Verse 5, And Jair died and was buried, buried in Cain. Died and was buried 
We know that formula. It's that sacred formula so often repeated in the scriptures of a life well lived in the service of the Lord. Died and was buried. What a gentle and sacred conclusion to these useful lives. Oh, what a solemn warning to others. Are we making ready? In our churches, are we making ready in the quiet times? In our children, are we making them ready in the quiet times? One commentator sends us off from our text this morning with these words. It is, of course, a difficult task to decide how far innocent pleasures may be enjoyed. We all struggle with that, don't we? Because of the quietness in our lives, prosperity. It's a difficult task to decide just how far innocent pleasures may be enjoyed or rewards or honors, wealth, accepted when God seems to have put them in our way. All the cities were not devoted to God, but Jericho was. Yet it may safely be said that in these days of widely diffused profession of Christianity, the verdict of Christian society on these points is too lenient. The love of money and of the good things of a life of of, of this life is too freely admitted as a motive for our actions. The deliberate preference of a life of poverty or a life at least of self-denial is too often looked down upon with derision, though it is clearly recommended by the example of our Christ. It may be doubted whether among the advantages we have unquestionably made of late in Christian principle in the spirit of Achan, that the spirit of Achan rather than the spirit of Joshua does not predominate among us still. Hmm. God help us. Quiet time. It's a quiet time, but listen. These great men died. And their influence was gone. Have we done all that we can do? Oh, may our testimony, may our testimony be that of that blessed apostle when in chapter Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12 he said, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and suffer need. At all times. In all places. Always. I'm instructed not to do one or the other, but both. How 
how are we using the quiet time? In the words of my title, God be praised. 45 years of cooling breezes. Well, what has Israel done with it? God willing, we shall see. Turn with me, please, in your hymn book again. Stand with me, please. Number 578.